Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Blaine Vest, who founded what's now known as Student Brands back in 1999 as a college freshman. He didn't raise any money, and he sold to Barnes & Noble Education for $58.5 million in August of 2017. Blaine also enjoys investing in for-profit and non-profit organizations, especially when his experience is helpful to the founders. He's also acquired 10 businesses, and he co-created a couple of television shows and produced some films as well. He's particularly interested in investing in meaningful documentaries and scripted films. In this episode with Blaine, we talk about how he got started with his business, how he grew it to the point of selling it for $58.5 million, the balance of being a student and then also growing a company, even working a job while he was growing this company. When he had a million dollars in revenue, he was still working. We talk about that. Talk about how he got into investing, how he got into this whole film and television industry as well, and even his experience with another company called Solve, which went through Y Combinator, and then ultimately decided to sell that as well. It just wasn't the right business. We go through all of that in this episode. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show. Leave a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Please do so. I very much so appreciate that. And the Weekly Grind, my weekly newsletter, comes out every Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Blaine Vest, founder of Student Brands. Blaine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, happy to have you on here. And there's many topics to discuss, uh, one with student brands and all of that, also with Solve, investing, everything. With student brands, which didn't start as that name, mm-hmm. how did that company get started? That started when I was a freshman in college, um, about two weeks into school. Um, I was looking to start something for students like myself. Yeah. And um, I was actually kind of familiar with this space of sharing course notes, research papers, any sort of study materials online. And I bought this domain name called oppapers.com, yep. which was started by another student in 1997 relaunched it basically just put a page up that said hey we're relaunching the site um let us know what you want your username and password to be and send us over a document and amazingly two days later there were like 15 documents in there in the email box a bunch of people were interested in joining um and that was kind of a moment where i learned the power of momentum just buying a, a site that existed before yeah, um, and getting that little bit of traffic, it, it meant a lot to us. So that's how we started. Yeah, and with that decision then to even go that route in the first place, were you considering other other business ventures or other things at the time? I'm just curious. I, I started like an online magazine um, in high school. I started this business where I would create banner advertisements for people um, and also submit their websites to search engines back when there were many search engines. (laughs) Um, I started those in in high school and that actually led me to, I had a merchant account in high school. Um, You know, I just, that, that early experimentation really helped. Um, But we, in college, I also started a a dating business, um, a number of little things and student brands <laughs> happen to be the one that worked. So, yeah. And yeah. with that too, you said they had, you had that early traction from actually buying this website. Like what were some of the things that you did to grow the company after kind of having that initial traction? One of the first things we did, um, was we downloaded our school's entire email list Love it. and we actually did that with a number of other schools. And I had, this was actually 
I had a little experiment experience with email marketing yeah. and I had desktop based email marketing software and we basically emailed our school, um, other schools, uh, so much so <laughs> that, um, this was pre kind of Wi-Fi in dorm rooms. Um, our, my internet in my room was shut down Dang. and I was like reprimanded by the, <laughs> by the dean. Um, thank God I had a, a, a friend across right across from my room who actually let us move our computers back in the desktop days wow. into his room and our desk and everything. So um, that was one of our early yeah. methods. That instantly makes me think of like the social network, <laughs> crashing yeah, network. Right. <laughs> you're just, right. you're crashing network before Facebook crashed the network <laughs> right, a couple right. years later, depending on timing. Um, yeah. with, with that too then, so you're doing this during college, you started during college. Mm-hmm. But then after, like, wh- how much, re- like, were you bringing in revenue already during college with this business? So we caught the very tail end of the dot-com boom. Yeah. Um, so we had, we had banner advertisements, like banner networks yeah. on the site. And those were bringing in, say, three or $400 a month. Um, once the dot-com crash occurred that went to zero, like yeah. really like it, we, we didn't experience that in a major way other than just feeling and seeing it go exactly to zero. Jeez. So thankfully there was an advertiser in the education space who was still interested in advertising with us. Um, and they ended up, we, let's see, post.com crash. I mean, we were making like, we were actually making more money. It was like a thousand bucks a month. Yeah. Um, but it was very small compared to like what people think about today. Yeah. And with that too, so with that growth then, so you, you had some revenue coming in mm-hmm. and you had this business on the side and you got a job after college. Then what did you do after that? After college, I did get a job. I worked at New Line Cinema, the movie company, as a consultant to the head of the new media marketing department. Yeah. And I did that because I just wasn't sure, like five years into this business, um, it was only, it was making like 60 grand a year, something like that. Yeah. So I wasn't, that, that was great, but I wasn't sure if that was like my thing and I wanted to get out there, keep, keep learning, maybe grow another career, who yeah. knows? So I ended up working at the movie company and it was a great experience. Yeah. And then like, at what point then did you decide to go full-time into student brands and why? So after being at New Line for say three and a half years, it was 2008 at this point, New Line actually laid off about 80% of its team, including the guy, my friend who I, who I was consulting for. Um, so it was kind of a natural progression back to student brands. Yeah. But frankly, I, I should have left a lot earlier um, because even in 07, we crossed a million in revenue. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have had a day job at that point. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You crossed a million in revenue in 2007 and you stayed at your job. Yeah. Take us through that. It's not, it's I, not normal. I, I, look, I look back and I think, I think, first off, I had a good amount of freedom at New Line. It yeah. was full-time consulting. So I was actually there in office like three days a week. Even when I was there, I wasn't super busy. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there if, if my friend, um, Gordon needed anything, I was there to help him Yeah, and the department too. But, um, so there's, there was that, there was that factor. I loved working there. I loved working with Gordon. Um, so there was that. And then I think there was still this element of being conservative, like financially conservative, 
just kind of still not knowing like, is this, is this really going to work? Is this, are we really going to get there? And looking back, yes, I should have, I should have moved on no matter what I should have <laughs> moved on earlier. And I guess to, to, to my credit and my co-founders, Todd and Chris, to, to their credit too, just because I was at new line, I mean, we worked all the time yeah. anyway. So like, yeah, like leaving, leaving the new line would be like, you're still working a, a ton on student brands regardless. Exactly. So it's kind of the same. Exactly. And, and with that too, then as it like, as you grew, so you did banner ads like way back when, and then mm-hmm. you, how, how did you transition into that subscription model? And like the, how did that business model kind of evolve for student brands? Yeah. So there was a guy who entered our space, uh, you know, launched a site or two Yeah. who ended up paying a number of people in the space to advertise on their sites. And he was the only one who was doing a subscription model, even kind of the older school businesses in the space, which still exist that would sell access to like one document. Like you want to access this one, these notes from UCLA (laughs) or USC, I should say. Yeah. How dare Uh, you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, you pay $10 to access this one thing. This guy just figured out that the subscription model was the way to go. So yeah. this was like early 2000s. We finally made the transition in 2005. Okay. I mean, ads were doing okay, but the subscription model, I mean, it was just like instantly, you know, like it doesn't work for all businesses, but we knew immediately that it was working. Um, so we, it ended up evolving into more of like a freemium model yeah. where with us, you could submit one of your own documents and get limited access to the site, or you could just pay and get access to everything. Gotcha. Um, but that was truly the transition for us going from kind of lifestyle bootstrap business to probably still, uh, I mean, still bootstrapped, but much I mean, we were making much more money than we ever expected. Yeah, in space. And, and at that point, as you started growing more and more, and then as you were, you know, you said a million in revenue. Like, how did your customer acquisition strategy change, and how did you grow the actual company in terms of more students on the platform? And how did that work? Mm-hmm. So we went, we went. There, a couple things come to mind. We went really deep with SEO. Yeah, we were a business made for SEO. Yeah, um, all that we, content. Yeah, exactly. We had tons of content. We were getting tons of new content every day. Um, yeah, we just uh, probably say 2000, I mean, 2005 ish, we, we started getting better and better at SEO, but, um, actually when Todd joined in 2008, um, he really pushed us to go even bigger with it. So that just became like a day to day focus, knowing everything we could about it. Um, working with, you know, not only knowing it ourselves, but also working with some great consultants and just really honing in on that. The other thing we did was we focused on buying competitors. Yeah. Um, starting in, let's say starting in 2000, 2008, we started buying like active competitors. Um, before then we had bought pre-existing like domain names that had been around for a while in the space and relaunched some sites that way. Even with OP papers, we did it that way. Yeah. But in 08 really started actively acquiring competitors. Um, and, and these were pretty small acquisitions. Our first two 
the first one was like $35,000. The second one was like $20,000. But that one that we bought for 20,000, I remember looking back, we were able to make like 400 grand on it in the first year. Wow. Um, just by taking our model, you know, applying like sort of SEO magic plus um, the way we, we grew content in, with the freemium model. Um, yeah, it just, it just worked. Wow. So, I mean, with that too, how did you come up with that idea then to just, okay, we should probably just start acquiring these comparisons we're seeing anyways, and then realizing that they'd be an affordable price. Like how, just take me through that. Cause that's not something I guess everyone does in terms of a strategy. Yeah. I, I've, I know more and more people are, are starting to look at the internet in, in this way, right? Like I think some people now especially are like sick of the venture backed model, yeah. you know, sick of those pressures as well as, um, you know, you can control your, your own destiny a bit more if, right. you're, if you're bootstrapping. I think for us, maybe it just goes back to looking at SEO where we were just looking at people, you know, we were so focused on SEO for our own yeah. um, sites and we were seeing other people ranking really well. Um, it was just like, Hey, you know what? Let's, let's try to buy these. Um, and like the one we bought for 20,000, I bugged the woman that started this business. I bugged her for probably well over a year. There were a couple like that yeah. and she wouldn't give me a price. The, the business was not generating any revenue. And finally I just said like, how about $20,000? And she said, yes. Um, and it, I, I guess we got very good at just, we were doing sort of the, the 3X profit acquisition. Mm -hmm. And most of those were, we knew the space so well, we knew the advertisers in the space, we could, we could pretty much guess what it was going to cost. Um, and I also got, I worked with our lawyer to create a one page yeah. acquisition, like deal document. Yep. Um, just made it super simple and we ended up doing like 15 of those and that was always like it was always a great way for us to grow yeah. and we also took out a lot of competitors that way and even took out competitors who were advertising on those competitors websites <laughs> yep. so it, it just it had a great effect for us yeah you know? I mean I could say especially in the world of SEO if you already know the space so well. If you already have the SEO knowledge and you're seeing these competitors, especially there's different tools now. I don't know what they had back then, but mm -hmm. there's tools to see your competitors' keywords and like you know how much traffic yeah. they're getting, all that sort of thing, where you could literally tell like, okay, these are the people who are top competitors. We could acquire them. They obviously help you out. Totally. Um, and with that too, as, as you're growing these businesses, I'm curious as to like the contractors you've had because I think you had a lot of like web development contractors and stuff. Like, mm -hmm. tell me about like working with contractors. Why you went that route versus employees, and uh, or at least early on. So early on, let's see, um, back in those really early days when we relaunched oppapers.com, right. I knew how to code to an extent. I'd like messed with basic and visual basic and I don't know, a little bit of C++. Yeah. Um, but we started getting so much content from people and we were manually adding this content to the website, you know, basically copying from a word document and then mm -hmm. pasting it into like HTML and then uploading that via FTP. It was really, right. Really. It was like <laughs> manual labor yes, basically exactly. for tech, for tech. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. <laughs> so, so that convinced, you know, that experience, um, along with some advice I had gotten from someone, um, convinced me to learn how to code. Yep. Um, so in late 1999, 
basically went from a very manual process of uploading documents, adding users, all that to being fully automated, you know, basically just learned PHP, the basics within a month. We weren't that complicated. We needed like a way to log in. We needed a way to submit documents and have them automatically, um, post on the website, categorize things. It was pretty straightforward in terms yeah. of coding. Um, so my co-founders and I did that for about eight years, um, where we were just doing it ourselves. And then Jeez. finally, yeah, finally <laughs> in 2007, um, Odesk, now Upwork, um, was getting pretty big. And I found someone on Odesk, Upwork, who I think I remember because it was an easy to remember number. I was paying him $8.88 an hour in mm -hmm. Ukraine. And he was way better than me, way faster. And um, that was a nice, that was like a transitional moment to, you know, focusing on coding, focusing on constantly updating the websites to, to, to being able to hand that off and then focus on things like actually doing acquisitions or whatever was more important at the time. Yeah. Um, from there, yeah, we worked with a number of outsourced developers. We ended up having um, three guys in Moldova um, initially who they pretty much did everything for us. We had a designer in Argentina um, who did all of our design. And we did that for, we worked with them for, gosh, maybe like three or four years, probably three years. And finally in 2011 made the transition to, we, we just knew that we wanted to go bigger. Like we were having a lot of fun working out of our house and doing these acquisitions and I mean, we had a great business, yeah. Um, but we just knew that we wanted to go bigger and uh, we decided to get an office and started hiring a team at that point and saw a lot of benefits from that too. So. Yeah, and that transition then, going from those those contractors then to having a, your own team, like obviously it takes some time to get to that point, but like, mm -hmm. how is that discussed among the founders to be like, do we want to do this or not? Does it just keep coming up in conversations? Like how, how did that go for you? So we actually... We thought about selling the business in 2000, let's say nine, around there. And we hired a banker. Um, we really didn't know much about that process of, of selling a business. We didn't know much about bankers. We didn't know much about anything other than we were just building a company. And that banker was a great guy. Um, probably not the right fit to sell this company, but he did introduce us to a lot of people who asked us a lot of tough questions yeah. and raised kind of like, especially back then, some red flags. Um, our branding wasn't great. Our, the fact that we were three guys running a company out of a house, at that time, people didn't like that as much now. I think today, people would see that as a freaking amazing opportunity. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, if... If, if it were the, the kind of numbers that we had at the time. Um, they also, you know, we just, we had like sort of typical bootstrapped earlier, I don't know if early stage is the right word, but um, we had sloppy accounting, nothing bad, but just we weren't professionalized. Sure. You know, yeah. so like getting all these, um, these, we got all these kind of bits of feedback and it was like, you know what, if we really want to, if we really want to take this to a next level, it seems like we need to, fix these things. Um, 
And yeah, I remember that summer, like 2011, we hired our first employee. Um, I think also back then we didn't know, we didn't know about like employment law. We didn't know how payroll worked. We didn't know any of that stuff. And now of course it's so easy. Like, you know, maybe you sign up for like whatever people are using now, Zenefits or Gusto or one of these services. And it's pretty, you're pretty much like live and you know, a day. Um, that kind of stuff kind of scared us, but we got through that and yeah, we just kind of went for it. Yeah. And with the company too, I mean, obviously it grew and grew and grew and just kept growing organically and you had bootstrapped this the whole time. Mm -hmm. You got people interested that were investors and you Mm -hmm. never wanted to go that route or what, take me through that thought process. Yeah. So in, in let's say like 2007, 2008 time, um, more competitors started popping up who were who were able to raise venture capital um who had very kind of education friendly brands um and and they you know that was inspiring for us because we before that time just had kind of the same competitors oftentimes uh, many of them were like students like us in the late 90s early 2000s that had just launched businesses and kind of like kept them going. Yeah. So in around 2008, we had some new competitors popping up who were venture backed, yep. were, had better branding. We're taking like a much more educator friendly approach to the space. Yeah. And they were, they were inspiring for us. And so we ended up transitioning. We were called oppapers.com along with all of the other brands we had acquired other, other brands that we had started. Um, we ended up transitioning to study mode, um, in say 2012 as just a much more bright, friendly student and educator brand. Um, and I think, you know, between our improvement there, as well as venture capitalists getting a little more excited about our particular space, as well as ed tech in general yeah led to i mean people were reaching out all the time (laughs) starting really from like 2012 on um even in you know years later 2016 let's say i thought okay every single person every vc has reached out at this point there's no way i'm gonna (laughs) hear from another one and yet every week there was just more and more um and actually we learned a lot from that too and we we did explore taking money once sort of like growth capital yeah um from a great firm in the bay area who also helped us you know helped us prep for the next phase of the company right um they had helped us they had encouraged us to set up a deal uh partnership with turnitin.com um, and some other changes that became instrumental to this being sort of a a great business. So, um, yeah, we, we really explored it that one time. Yeah. Um, didn't work out, but no regrets. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in exploring that, but not going for it then, I'm Mm -hmm. just curious as to why, I mean, cause like I, I just tend to definitely do more bootstrap things and not really interested in the VC route necessarily. It depends on the opportunity, Mm -hmm. but like with so many people wanting to take VC money, wanting to go that route, I'm just, my perspective, like why did you decide to just keep going what you kind of had done? Yeah. So we were, we were pretty much all in on that idea. 
Um, at some point, uh, I don't know if they were I'm trying to think back. They, they weren't as confident in our growth or, or something like that happened yeah. and they decided to not move forward. Um, which was sad at the time for us, like, you know, going through any sort of process like that, uh, there's a lot of emotion, you know, it's yeah. just, it's excitement, it's, uh, pressure. There's all, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, I don't, it's funny the, the way kind of our story worked out, it's better that that never happened. It's better that we never took money. Yeah. Um, it would have been a much different story. You know, our exit was very good for us. Yep. Um, if we had raised a bunch of money, um, it would not have been as good of a story. Of course, we don't know. Maybe through that partnership with that firm, we would have figured out something else that we were doing and it yeah. ends up being a much bigger company. Who knows? Um, but if we just kind of look at the way it played out, no regrets, you know? Yeah. Oh, for so. sure. I and mean, even talking to one of the past guests I had on was Rand Fishkin who mm -hmm. started Moz and, yeah. um, yeah, SEO world. You might know about yeah, him for sure. and he's talking about like on the episode of how one of the early offers he had gotten from Moz, I think it was from HubSpot mm -hmm. and it was for something like 25 million and they were in their head. Like Rand was thinking like, I think it was like 40 million they wanted for the company. So like those numbers just weren't close enough, whatever. But from that 25 million, like he would have, I think walked like eight to 12 or something of that. He's like, that's like real in your pocket money. And then instead he decided not to. And then the way it worked out, it's like, he still owns obviously part of Moz, but they needed, they need to be valued at like a couple hundred million for the numbers to work out to make the same he would have made back then. And you think of it, he would have had that money already for those years. So it's, oh, it's so crazy to think about the numbers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, how that might sure. work out. And then yeah. t take us through that point then. So getting to the point of eventually selling the company, how did that all play out? Our process of getting to our eventual exit probably started with when we brought on um, our, C our, our president, Thomas Swalla, in early 2015. Um, he came on board. Uh, this was actually after the that fundraise that I mentioned, after yep. that didn't work out. And um, he was perfect for us. Um, he was super hungry, yet had been through multiple exits and brought a just all sorts of knowledge to the company that we didn't have. Um, and also, you know, for me, uh, and I think my co-founders too, who's a, a new thought partner, um, just someone with, with a variety of experience that we didn't have. And so when Thomas came on board, um, you know, we, he came on board to help us grow this thing to whatever it was going to be, just take it to whatever next level it was. And, um, eventually we decided that exploring the sale of the company was a good option. Um, our numbers were, were good. Um, we, we had, we had done a lot. Thomas helped bring on a great executive team. Uh, our kind of international businesses that we had actually our largest traffic business was our Spanish business, but we also had a great business in Brazil and France. Like everything was, was doing pretty damn well Yeah. at the beginning of 2017. Um, we brought on a banker to help us run a real process to sell the company. He, you know, through that, we ended up meeting a lot of, um, financial buyers as well as some strategic buyers. And actually that's, 
through that we met Barnes and Noble Education. We weren't as familiar familiar with them at the time. Yeah, probably be, because they were more focused on brick and mortar. You know, they operate they, they operate a ton of college bookstores. Um, they do have some software businesses as well, but we just hadn't met them before. Yeah, and they ended up being excited about what we were doing, and I think. Um, given the overall space with with Chegg shifting to digital, um, going from their textbook rental business to really focusing on digital. Um, our, you know, Barnes & Noble education wanting to really leap into digital as well. Um, we had, you know, businesses in, um, you know, the course notes and research space, domestically and internationally. We had a test prep site. Um, we had just a number of different businesses in the space that I think were a great fit for what they wanted to do. And yeah, I mean, from the time of meeting them to actually closing the deal, I want to say it was like within three months. Yeah. So it was a really fast process, um, but seems to have worked out really well for everyone involved. Yeah. And the thing with that, people always see these exits about these fast, you know, matter of like a couple years and they sell like, which is insane and not realistic. It took like 17 years to get to this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's going through your head when you're like, I'm going to sell off this thing that I've built for so freaking long. Yeah. For, <laughs> for me, I, I found that I, I think I have maybe a different perspective than a lot of founders okay. who have built these bootstrap companies. I think for me, I was, I was actually ready to move on. Um, I wasn't, I think a lot of founders are worried about what's next. Um, like if I don't have this business, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I, I was over that at that point. And I also happened to be in YC that summer as well, working on a new company. Yep. Um, it was a crazy summer to say the least with, you know, being in YC plus selling that company. But yeah, I was, I was ready. I was ready to move on. And because I had brought on Thomas as president and then he, I eventually handed over my CEO, CEO role to him as well. Yep. Um, from day one of the sale, I have not been involved in the business. So it was kind of, that was a, a luxury and a, a just clean transition for me too. So I was yeah. happy about it. Yeah. And talking to a, a, you know, a bunch of other entrepreneurs, it's not always a clean break when you sell a company, right? Right. <laughs> Which can be a whole other story when you have to, you're either forced to stay on, basically forced to stay on or like, yeah, you really don't want to, or it just doesn't go well when you're there and like so many things. So I'm sure that's helpful that you had the clean break. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice. Really nice. And you mentioned, okay, we're going to get in Solve. So Solve, how did that come about? Why did you decide to go to YC as well? I'm curious. Let's see. So with Solve, um, I kind of stumbled upon that space when I was traveling in Asia. I was actually going from Seoul, Korea to, to Bangkok, Thailand uh, with a friend. And um, we had actually been kind of roughing it in Seoul. We were sleeping on a friend's floor. Nice. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I just thought, I said to him like, you know what, let's just, let's do this right. Let's see. I don't know if there's some way to get through immigration and customs more quickly, but yeah. let's see, I, I, let's see what I can find. So I, I searched and I found a company in Bangkok that said they could help us through their website was kind of crappy. So I wasn't sure if this was going to work and they wanted credit card and oh, passport Jesus. information, of course, but I was like, screw it. And I booked it 
And um, we ended up, um, you know, we flew to Bangkok. There was a guy waiting for us, like right when we got out of the plane. We hopped in a golf cart and were taken to the immigration area. Um, and it was pretty reasonably priced. Um, that The price for this type of service varies all over the world, but in Bangkok in particular, it was pretty cheap. So I was just kind of blown away. And that was actually in 2013. Okay. So over three years before um, I actually started Solve. But I never forgot about that experience. And over the years, as I had been, uh, you know, just traveling and just exploring to see if this service existed elsewhere, I realized that it did exist in plenty of different airports, but there was just, there was no easy way to book it. And amazingly, this company in Bangkok that had kind of the crappy website, that was more advanced than most of the companies around the world. So yeah, ended up creating like a prototype for the business in 2000, like summer 2016. Um, You know, just a a simple example of how it could, a functional example, but um, you know, a simple one of how it could work. And um, I ended up actually, you know, sort of side story, I ended up meeting Sean, my co-founder, when I invested in a company he started um, that was in the, the dating space. And we had just become friends through that. And when he was looking for something new to do, I asked him if he wanted to join me at Solve. And it was kind of a, a perfect partnership for us. Well, well, yeah, I mean, with that then, so you, you get to that point then of you had this experience uh, traveling, you knew there's opportunity. You kind of developed this idea the summer before. Mm-hmm. You met Sean. <laughs> You're like, you want to have him join you with the company. Why did you decide to go then the Y Combinator route versus something else in terms of either just continuing to build it? Like, what was that strategic thing for you then? Especially with the funds you, in theory, had from student brands. I'm just curious on how that played a part. So for Solve, so I think Sean and I, we both wanted to do YC, potentially for different reasons, potentially for the same. But um, Sean had graduated college not too long before we applied to YC. Yeah. And for me, coming from this, this bootstrapped world and building a business in that way for, you know, 17 or so years. Yeah. I really, I had heard of, heard about YC, of course, for many years. Um, but I just, I thought of it as a, a great way to learn. Yeah. And I think Sean did too, uh, a, a great way to just go all in, learn that way, sort of whether it's the venture backed or just high growth way of building a company. Sure. Um, yeah. So, so we applied and we were excited, um, when we got in genuinely excited. Um, and actually our other co-founder, Justin, uh, lived here in this house at the time. He was an old (laughs) friend of mine I've known for like 20 years. Uh, so he came on as our CTO and the three of us, we were all living here at this house at that time. Yeah. And the three of us, um, it was exciting. We went up to, to San Francisco for the summer and yeah, just went all in on building solve. Yeah. And then the growth of that company then, so you go through YC and obviously they want hyper growth. They bring in mentors. Like I've had, I think I've had a couple of YC people on the show. Um, what was that experience like for you? And like, where did you then that take solve after that experience? 
I think we were we were lucky. We had started a little before YC, so yeah. we officially launched in I want to say February 2017. Okay, um, we started YC like end of May, early June. So you know we got our first order in February, like four months before. Yeah, and we had you know a few months to to get some momentum going, have some experience of like what can go wrong. Um, also build up some, some partnerships. We had, we had brought on a great advisor who had introduced us to some big travel agencies, believe it or not, they still exist. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so by the time we got into YC, we had a, a decent momentum, not much, but like, like I was saying earlier, I, I really like momentum. It kind of kept us, kept us going. We had a nice, um, amount of orders coming in every week. Yeah. Um, so yeah, throughout, throughout YC, um, you know, it is a very growth focused program. So every week, um, you're being held accountable for, for how big the comp, how many orders you're getting or whatever that metric is. Um, for us, it was orders and we did pretty well. Like we were, we grew throughout the summer. We had a decent business by the time, uh, we did demo day. We actually raised a few hundred thousand dollars before our demo day. That was that's kind of typical at YC, it seems. Um, and we we demoed. I think it went pretty well. We were talking to a, a number of other investors at that time, and after that, um, Sean and I and and Justin had a heart to heart, and we realized that this was probably not the business that we wanted to be building over the next however many years. And, um, we decided to give back our, the money we raised, um, from the investors who had invested pre demo day. And, um, um, thankfully, uh, and not surprisingly, one of our partners, Black Lane, was really interested in the business. It was very complimentary yeah. to their business. They do like private car service all over the world. And our business kind of filled a gap for them. So um, our, you know, our agents pick up people like at their gate uh, when they arrive somewhere. And then that same agent can take them all the way to their car, which you know, in theory, they've booked with Black Lane. Mm-hmm. So now um, it ended up being a perfect uh, acquisition partnership with Black Lane, um, and the business continues to grow with them. I mean, how did you decide though that this wasn't the business you wanted to build? I mean, I imagine it's a potentially tough conversation to have. How did you decide that, or was maybe you just guys knew right away you didn't want? We that was a. That was a that was a magical summer. <laughs> it was also very tough. Yeah. Um, we were not in a. It was not a. It's not an easy business, and not that one should just be focusing on building easy businesses. Sure. But connecting passengers with a variety of agents and companies all over the world that have different prices, different policies. Um, all sorts of differences, um, and also some reliability issues. Um, it's stressful. It, and, and I'll give you a funny (laughs) example. Like, you know, at student brands at study mode, um, going back 
say the 2008, 9, 10, actually for a number of years, we didn't even have a phone. We didn't, we didn't interact with partners. We didn't interact with customers outside of customer support, which was minimal. Um, we, it was a very isolated business, which I learned was a luxury yeah. um, because solve was not, I mean, we were getting calls from travel agents, calls from consumers all the time. Um, you know, like a funny incident was one of our agents in our agent partners in New York was supposed to, they were helping, um, not an unaccompanied minor, but like a 16 year old, um, who I guess, yeah, is an unaccompanied minor, but obviously not like a little kid. Yeah. And, um, it was a celebrity's son and, uh, the agent went and sat like 20 feet away. He could tell this like 16 year old boy didn't, didn't really want to hang out. So it was yeah. just, he was sitting away and, um, the, uh, something happened where the celebrity had heard that the agent just left and wasn't making sure that he had gotten on the plane when he was there. Um, but so I have this like travel agent. I remember I was, I was home. It was one of the weekends where we had all come to LA for some reason. And this travel agent is like screaming in my ear on the phone. And I'm just like, this is not, this, <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. This is not the business. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, when you're dealing with, cause we were, we were not, it was not a, an inexpensive service it, depending on airport, you know, it could be like a hundred bucks. Sometimes it was like 300 bucks, but, and, and also people, people, we all have like really high expectations of travel. Oh yeah. It's like, even when a, a plane has like something mechanical that they're trying to fix, people get mad mm -hmm. and it's like, don't you understand? They're trying to like <laughs> prevent the plane from crashing. Yeah, so everyone from so, dying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, our, our business was expensive and it just kind of had the same high stakes that all travel businesses have high expectations, I should say. Um, and I just realized like, I think all of us, um, Sean and Justin and I realized like this was, this was not the one. Yeah. Um, and I've thought, I've thought a couple of times, like, should we go back and, and try to do it again? You know, we learned a lot there. There are different things I would do now, but um, nah, no, <laughs> well, that goes to show. I mean, like, especially people listening to the show, trying to start and grow a business. It's like figuring out what business to run. Cause it could be a business that could be profitable. It could be whatever, but like, do you want to be running that business? Even looking back to like something I started in business school, which is like a podcast production company, um, pod puppy that we shut down. My best friend and I shut down, um, a matter of months ago, it was like, we were getting clients and we were doing yeah, doing a lot of editing work and stuff. And then we realized the variety and the range of what people expected for podcast editing and what they wanted and like the back and forth emails and the calls. And it was just like, this was not quite as simple as we thought. Cause I have, I guess my editings were a lot simpler for my show, let's just say. And like, depending on the show, whatever, there's just so much, such a big range. And that was a, a nightmare. And I remember one time we were literally trying to like, we'd figure out all logistics to like put systems in place for everything to make it like, okay, this is as smooth as it's gonna be. like we have Trello cards, we have this, whatever. And like the next week, something else happened. We're just like, look, look at each other. We're just like, we don't want to do this anymore. We're like, should we just like shut this down? And mm. that goes to show thinking about the business model and what it's going to actually be like before 
you start it, even if it's a good idea, it might be needed. Like, do you want to run that mm-hmm. company or not? Yeah, it's funny. And, and we had a real, we had a lot of thoughts around and conversations around like some of the stuff that was painful for us. Yeah, we could have solved, um, you know, Paul Graham of YC talks about like do do things that don't scale. Yeah. So we were doing every role. We were, you know, our phones were, the ringers were on 24 seven. Um, we definitely did things that didn't scale and it sounds like you were too. And yeah, we, we, we also had that decision of like, could we just hire like a, a person to help do all the stuff that mm-hmm. we don't want to do? Um, but we really came to the point of like, nah. Yeah. Man. Well, that's what, that's what happened when we had someone, we like brought someone on part time that was doing like our email, like mm-hmm. literally handling our inbox. And it was like, but we still have to answer to certain things. And we still, it's just not, it's still not as simple as you think, even with, even with hiring out some of those things, like owning that business was like, we're going to still have nightmares of like customer service problems. And it's like, yeah, is it worth it for that business model? Like right. we said no. And so we decided to shut that down. Yeah. Um, and then with solve, so like solve, obviously you decided to close that down then the investing, when did you start investing in other companies? Uh, how did that play a role in the last uh, matter of years of your career? I started investing in companies in 2011, just doing like small angel checks. Yep. And, you know, a couple have worked out pretty well. Um, it's sort of the typical story. Many have not worked out. Yeah, as it goes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've learned a lot in that process. Um, I think I've been able to help as an investor and advisor, um, but also learned a lot from the founders I've worked with. Um, now it's funny. I want to say that I'm not that active. I have done a couple investments in the past like six months. I, I actually started focusing more on funds, investing in like venture, um, and later stage funds. Um, I just decided that I, I'm, I may at some point want to go bigger with, with angel specifically, but at least for now, um, I don't mind, you know, I'm happy to pay, uh, the carry and fees to have someone who's fully focused on investing and building those relationships and, and all that fully focused on that, you know, and, and I can help out where I can, yeah, where I can like, li- like limit your upside a little bit less, like a little bit less upside sure. potentially, but then you hands off, essentially, yeah. which is helpful in some ways as well. And I learn, I learn a lot from investing in funds too. Um, just, um, talking with those, uh, investors, yep. uh, seeing what they're doing and especially like I'm an investor in a few funds in Southeast Asia. I'm not there. Um, and so I, you know, I, I wouldn't, it'd be hard for me to do that if I weren't investing with others. And yeah. I just, I learn a, a lot through that. Yeah. And then one more with a kind of other area here with the uh, freedom fighter films and like getting into like films and making films, producing films. How did that start for you? So I've been interested in the entertainment industry for a while. Um, during college, I interned at New Line Cinema, right. Capitol Records, um, a production company called Bender Spank here in LA, and ended up working at New Line for three and a half years after college. And I wanted to somehow stay involved in entertainment. Um, so actually, after New Line, I partnered with a friend from New Line, New Line Television, 
and we created this TV development company. And over, say, like three or four years, we developed like 65 television concepts, one of which we created a show for VH1. Um, we had a pilot air on A&E, which were a couple of nice successes for us, especially yeah. because we were nobodies, really. Um, at some point, I realized like that was probably not going to turn into a real business, even with the show that we had on VH1. The, the ROI was very minimal. Um, and I was investing a good amount of money, uh, into this, this TV company. So eventually we, we stopped doing that. I want to say that was like 2014 and I still wanted to stay involved in entertainment somehow. And that was when I kind of transitioned to investing in independent film with more of a mindset of not making money. Um, but it's, it's something I like to do, uh, like to support filmmakers and be, be involved in interesting projects. Um, so I kind of started going bigger with that. I think I invested in like three films in 2016, um, maybe a couple in 2017. And now I've gotten to the point where I'm just like, I want to invest in, it's really my wife and I now want to invest in one film a year, um, typically a documentary. Um, and we're always aiming to launch at Sundance. That's yeah. like the one element of our thesis just because, well, Sundance is an amazing organization. The festival is just a perfect launch pad for many, many films. Um, and what I would say is we're on a, a break even strategy. Like we're not in it to make money. If we can break even, which still is hard, um, we just keep reinvesting in the community. Yeah. And with the wide variety of experience you've had with you know, bootstrapping a company, you went, you got some funding through YC and everything and doing films and doing investing yourself. Someone looking to launch and grow a business, like anything you'd, you'd mention to them, things to think about anything at all, but as we kind of wrap things up here, I would say to, I would say to focus on tech, which sounds maybe obvious, but at least that sounds obvious probably in our conversation sure. with a lot of the people that, that you speak with as well as your listeners um, and just being in this city. But I think, I think for me, and maybe this is now I'm just, I'll just say like <laughs> my, my thought process when I was younger was I actually really wanted to work in the music industry. Um, that internship at Capitol records that I did in 2004, I was, I was interning in A&R um, I feel like I was lucky to kind of catch the tail end of music's glory days. Yeah. Um, I know it's come back in many ways now, but I, I even made a conscious decision when I, when I went and worked at new line, I, it wasn't music. It was movies. I felt like there was more potential in the long term. Yeah. Um, for me. And eventually I guess I started, I started focusing on, I really started focusing on like, where could I, make the most money, mm -hmm. which maybe people don't like to talk about. Sure. But, um, and I'm not really talking about just like making money to buy Ferraris and stuff like that. I mean, just getting to a point of freedom. Yeah. Like just being able to do what I want to do and thinking back way before our exit, way before, um, we even started doing really well in like Oh seven, Oh eight. Um, you know, even the idea of like 
I was making like 60, well, we were making, excuse me, like 60 grand um, out of college plus working at New Line. I got a, yep. a little boost there. It was more of like assistant style salary given I was a consultant. I was not there all the time, but um, I had a lot of freedom back then, you know, and, and now I know that I'm, I know that I'm lucky. I know that I'm lucky. Like this whole path worked out the way it did. Yeah. But I, this is what I wanted to happen. You know, us sitting here now, um, you know, I just turned 39. My wife and I can do what we want to do. We have fun. Um, we can see our family, see our friends, um, not stressed out about work or having to make a certain amount of money, whatever. Like, um, so I guess going back to my point about focusing on tech, what I've realized now is that the, there's so much potential in tech and, and everything has an element of tech in it now. Right. Right. But it's just crazy. Like, you know, the salaries that a recent college graduate, um, especially like computer science focused, you know, undergrad. Um, but it, I, I never dreamed of making the salaries that people are making now right yeah. out of college. Um, I mean, I was, those were like lifetime goals. Like if you're making like 150 or 200, whatever it may be, like, I mean, that's just amazing. It's insane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've kind of started looking at things now as like there's the tech world and there's everything else. Yeah. Um, I think the tech world not only brings money, it brings freedom to many people. You see so many remote jobs. Um, it's just, it's, yeah. So that's how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, I just saw a thing on LinkedIn recently about like tech overcoming, um, passing investment banking in some many mm. cities in terms of like salaries and like, um, coming full circle to like Sean Sheik, for instance, they worked with career karma who mm. helps people get into coding boot camps. And I actually interviewed the, those guys, uh, interviewed Arthur Meester for the, for this podcast. And he's talking about salaries. When I visited in, in SF, he's talking about like how the salaries go up so quickly for engineers and stuff. I mean, even like, you start off with a really good base, but then even if you're in SF, especially like it goes up so quick cause there's such a need. So like to your point of like, if you're looking at starting growing businesses, looking at the tech side of it, like there's so much potential and sure. it's in everything. Like you said, for sure. And it's funny. Like I, I learned for me, like I, I'm not a true computer scientist. I coded, but I, I kind of hacked <laughs> things together, but going back, if I were to focus, um, there are other roles too, whether you're in product or design or, you know, there's like, so many different opportunities where you you don't have to have that engineering skill set um and you can still do really well have fun have a lot of freedom so yeah yeah and and just with that too i mean with you mentioned kind of tech and everything like how would you say that someone should dip their toes in or like look at that in terms of how like breaking in in that capacity well, I think it's pretty amazing what you can do with with some of these boot camps. Um, I've honestly even considered going to to one at this point. I just yeah. think it's it's exciting. But being someone who's um, been in a hiring role, mm-hmm. um, I've been blown away at the opportunities that these boot camps can create, and also 
they create in a limited amount of time. Yeah. So whether, again, whether it's product design, development, whatever it is, I think it's, if someone is like just starting off or even mid, mid career and looking for something new to do, um, investing, whether it's like three to nine months, it seems like those yeah. are kind of the harder core boot camps. Like, man, I mean, it's just an amazing way to, to dip your toes in. Yeah and learn. Yeah. And you can take such a leap after that. I mean, like I see the stories of like, of career karma and people who go through like those boot camps. it's just like the amount that you can jump from just going through this time period of, you know, like you said, three, nine months, six months, whatever it is, is kind of crazy. And that will give you the skills. Yeah. To work for someone else. But two, if you want to launch your own thing and you have some of those skills then from a tech side, Mm -hmm. it's just beneficial in your career moving forward for the rest of time, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. And Blaine, where can people go to reach out, connect with you if they want to, about anything you're doing? Um, I know this is lame, but <laughs> LinkedIn. Yes, uh, we can link it up. Just find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Yeah. We'll link it up in the show notes as well. Blaine, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.